because you're jumping back into the gut. Oh, let's hey, go. Coach. Welcome to the Basketball Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Oliver. I appreciate you joining us for this week's podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit basketballimmersion.com for more coaching resources and access to all the basketball podcasts. I hope you will give us a shout out on social media, on Twitter at Bball Immersion, or on Instagram at Basketball Immersion to help me continue to share the game. Enjoy the episode. Coach, I really appreciate your support and sharing of the podcast. I'm excited to announce a new partnership that we have started and we are now presented by and supported by the outstanding team at risingcoaches.com. Aligning with a basketball brand like Rising Coaches has always been a goal of mine since starting the basketball podcast, and I'm grateful for the opportunity that has come our way. Rising Coaches provides access to the largest coaching tree in basketball. Through them, you can develop your craft as a coach, connect with other coaches and decision makers, be the first to learn about countless job opportunities on the exclusive Rising Coaches member site. Go to risingcoaches.com today to find out more and become a member. Excited to welcome Murray State head coach Matt McMahon to the podcast. Coach McMahon is in his seventh year as head coach of Murray State and has an overall record in six seasons at Murray State of 123 and 64 for a 65% win percentage. Coach McMahon has led the Racers to one of the greatest three year periods in program history that includes three straight OVC regular season championships from 2017 18, 2018 19, and 2019 20, and two OVC tournament titles. 2017-18 and 2018-19. In the last three seasons, the Racers are a combined 77 and 20 for a 77% overall winning percentage. Coach McMahon, welcome to the podcast. Chris, thanks so much for having me. Great to be with you today. Well, uh, good time of year. Uh, I know we were just discussing off air. You're getting back into league play here where you go Thursday, Saturday, and uh you know, tremendous success, especially within the league. And uh, wondering maybe just to start, if you can outline a little bit of your philosophy about how you approach your league schedule. Well, for us, we are always Thursday, Saturday. So Mondays, we always spend strictly on Murray State, uh, trying to make corrections from the previous weekend, get our team better. Uh, then Tuesday, Wednesday is preparation for Thursday's game. Uh, we never look ahead. We don't ever take advantage of the extra time early in the week to prepare for Saturday's game. So uh, that puts some pressure on us come Thursday night and Friday. Uh, but our goal, you know, as cliche as it is, always to go one and oh, uh, and then we'll turn our attention to the next one. So Friday, uh, usually when we have a mature team, uh, we try to be pretty short uh, and limited in our contact on Fridays. Uh, and put all our attention toward preparing for uh, Saturday's opponent. And then Sunday's always an off day, uh, which works out well, not only for players, uh, but coaches also. Absolutely. And your family and everyone's families as well. So, Coach, uh, we're, this is great because we're going to get into some in-game coaching, a little bit of philosophy and the tactics that uh, you might use. And uh, this builds nicely into that concept. Uh, maybe particularly talking about first empowering others and how you use your staff or your players to help you prepare. And you already talked about it, a really short turnaround to the second game. So do you have a staff member that's working ahead? And then I'm wondering if, do you ever look ahead in terms of the scout and preparation for that Saturday, that next game? I, I do not personally ever look ahead. I'm very fortunate. We have a great staff. Uh, they do a tremendous job in their game preparation. Uh, so, that 
whoever's in charge of that scout, they're, they're way out in front. I always tell our assistants, they end up the way we divide it up about 10 scouts a piece uh, for the year. And I, I want them to be an expert on those teams. They should know those teams better than those teams know themselves. Uh, and then it comes down to the meeting time we spend as a staff of really breaking down and simplifying what we want to deliver to the players. Uh, because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what we know. Uh, it matters what our players can carry over from the scouting meetings and the, and the practices and carry over to the game floor. Uh, so, you know, really fortunate to have a great staff. Uh, they do a tremendous job and really simplifying and giving the players the personnel, offensive, defensive, and special team keys that we need to be successful. And then when you get into the in-game part of it, uh, I imagine I know the answer a little bit, but uh, in terms of empowering your staff, do you make all the decisions? And then if not, what type of decisions are you empowering to your assistant coaches? Chris, I think it's a great question. And I think it has to be done with uh, intentionality. I think if you don't divide it up, if, if things aren't very specific in our duties, you end up with, regardless of how many people you have on your staff, everybody watching the ball for 40 minutes. And it's not a very efficient way uh, to make in-game adjustments, uh, make changes at halftime. So I really look at it as kind of like a football program, uh, offensive coordinator, defensive coordinator, special teams coordinator. Uh, and then we're fortunate to have uh, support staff here, some positions we've been able to add the last few years. Uh, one of them's in charge of rebounding. That's all I want them to care about and focus on uh, during the game. Um, because I, I think if you do it, you know, just, hey, guys, give me some suggestions as we go along. Well, everyone's just going to watch the ball. Well, if we're setting a stagger screen on the weak side, I can't see everything. I want to know how the first screener's defender is guarding it and what do we need to do differently to take advantage of that. Uh, and so, uh, I guess the final piece of that is I, I have one coach who's in charge of bringing the substitution uh, suggestions to me. Uh, I want everyone involved in that, but what I don't want is the games going on and I got four guys over there yelling at me, hey, put Johnny in, uh, put Ryan in. I, one guy, one voice brings those, they communicate amongst themselves on the bench and bring that information to me. Uh, and, and I think that's a big thing. I want there to be great communication and chemistry amongst our assistant coaches. And, and I think our guys do a great job of that. You get to these timeouts, you don't have much time. So I want them to hit me with one or two quick points. And then we take those into the timeout huddle and, and make the uh, corrections that are necessary. I think that's such an important point you shared there about one voice actually communicating to you. Uh, because I've been there before where too many people are trying to tell you things. I'm curious then, do you empower your players to be able to communicate to your staff as well during games about what they see? And then that can come to you as well. I, I think it's so important, Chris. And that's what ultimately what I want to get to in the relationship with our players to where it's a partnership. And once we get, and we've been really blessed, we've had great, great players, but, and, and I want to give them the freedom to make plays, also to make suggestions on the court. Uh, but the second piece of that is they have to be all in. They have to be bought into the culture of our program. There has to be a trust uh, between myself and that player. And I think that's the fun part of coaching when you get your relationships 
with your players to that point. Uh, I always speak about John Morant. Uh, what a great learning experience it was for me because he saw things out there on the court that I would have never seen. Uh, he just, he was a basketball, is a basketball genius. And, you know, so during those free throw situations for him to come over, hey, you know, coach, we need to change this ball screen angle or, you know, they're looking to hedge this pin down. Let's look for the slip on this next action or whatever it might be. Those are things I wouldn't have seen uh, over the course of a 40 minute game. And so uh, I, I think that all starts, though, with your ability to build relationships and trust with your players. Well, and to that point, as a coach, it's impossible for you to remember and process everything that's going on as well. Um, so I'm wondering, do you have a coach that writes down your comments during the game as well? Because I know sometimes that's hard to remember some of the things that you say. I have our video coordinator sits right behind the bench. And, and I don't know that I ever see anything that important, but I, I occasionally I'll tell, make sure we make a note of this for the next time out. But I don't have anyone keeping a running log or anything. Uh, my words certainly are not that important. <laughs> I'm sure they're more important than you think. And, uh, you know, with that, then um, how different is your communication plan that you just outlined from that to a practice? Is there, are there some similarities to that, that in practice you want one voice to communicate to you as well, or is it a little bit more open in a practice environment? Oh, no, I want, I want every coach coaching. Uh, I think. Right. I didn't mean that in that context. I meant in terms of feedback to you. Oh, yeah. No, when we uh, say we have a quick water break or a dead ball situation and we huddle as a staff, I want everyone uh, empowered to speak up and, and let me know what they see. Uh, you know, really, I, I like the personnel feedback a lot. I know we get caught up in X's and O's, uh, but we spend a lot of time on I know, what, what's this player's mindset today? What's his focus level? Uh, how can we get more out of him? How can we get this guy locked back in? Uh, to what what we need to get accomplished today. Uh, so that speaking to that, I have each player is assigned to a mentor coach. So each coach on my staff has two to three players in their mentor group, and they meet weekly. They do one-on-one -on -one individual workouts with that coach. Uh, they cover academics, social, uh, film study, uh, every aspect of their life experience while they're at Murray State. And, and I want them to have those great relationships so uh, we can help these players max out consistently on a day-to-day -day basis. I love that. That's uh, such an important concept. And coming back, maybe you maybe diving a little bit deeper if you're okay with that. You talked sure. about one coach, say, being responsible for rebounding. So can you give us an idea what they would be looking at and then what they would be communicating, say, if things were going well or weren't going well? Well, for example, we're at Auburn the other day, one of the best rebounded teams in the country. So he he is charting our missed, missed hits, as we call them, missed box outs. Uh, and in that each media timeout, he's going to relay that information. Hey, uh, John missed two box outs that segment. We missed seven as a team. We really need to address this in the timeout and, and make it a huge emphasis moving forward. So. Uh, that's what he's charting, uh, missed hits on the defensive end. And then on our offensive end, you know, we've gotten off to a good start as, as a top offensive rebounding team this year. Uh, just overall effort to get to the glass. Uh, we have responsibilities. We have guys who are assigned to crash the glass every time. 
Uh, and then we have get back guys and making sure that everyone is fulfilling their duties uh, there, uh, not only for our offensive rebounding coverage, but then that sets our defensive transition alignment. Uh, so those are the things he would be watching, uh, not only in the games, uh, but in practice. And then when we meet after each game, uh, the coordinator of each area I covered, offense, defense, special teams, rebounding, uh, has already edited the game, clipped everything up, and we meet as a staff and go through it and watch it. Uh, the good, the bad, the ugly, uh, the corrections that need to be made. And it really helps me organize the next practice uh, and, and the emphasis that we need to have for that upcoming week to hopefully keep improving our team as the season goes along. Well, it's such great insights, Coach. I mean, there's so much information flying around nowadays to have this organizational and communication plan is so important. And coming back to you then more specifically, because you talked about some of your assistants, what they'd be looking for in a game. And it's somewhat obvious that you should watch the game, but what specifically are you watching? Really, I'm just trying to see, uh, you know, for us, it starts defensive transition, making sure we're not giving up anything easy there so we can at least set our half court defense and hopefully make the other team earn everything they get on the offensive end. You know, how are they guarding our ball screens is a big key for, for me because that kind of changes how we want to proceed uh, with our game plan. Uh, what are they doing? We, we're very fortunate. We have a player this year, Tevin Brown, who moves without the ball uh, like a Rip Hamilton, uh, Clay Thompson type. How are they guarding him off these multiple uh, actions that we're setting for him so we can make any adjustments there? Uh, really just, you know, what's given it, what, what's causing us problems on the defensive end of the floor. Uh, but those are the main things for me. Uh, but the, I, I would say the number one thing is always what, where is our level of effort? And, and I, I always want us to be a team that our identity is that we're, we're tough, uh, that we compete relentlessly and that we're very unselfish. So always, uh, I got into a few specific things basketball wise, but the core for me will always be what our culture is and what we've built our program on and making sure those things are evident out there on the court. That's awesome. I want to come back to effort, but first let's start with the example you gave in terms of ball screens and then more going a little deeper than that. What cues are you watching for that would trigger a change or response? Let's say in your ball screen coverage. We played a, a very good James Madison team down in Florida, and I thought they did a terrific job in the first half of icing our ball screens, uh, really loaded up uh, to the ball side and, and made it difficult on us. It kind of tricked us into taking some pull-up, contested 17-footers, a lot of low-percentage shots in the first half. And so we were able to go in at halftime and, and make some changes there to what we wanted to do. Uh, got away from a couple of our ball screen actions, uh, went to some more regular just screening, uh, pin downs and staggers and flares. Uh, and then we're able to come back to the ball screens, different angles on the floor, uh, some different cuts on the weak side uh, to try and open up more space uh, and get more paint touches and, and more rhythm catch and shoot three opportunities. Well, I love that. And I, I want coaches to understand that. Like sometimes the best way to counter ball screen coverage is to go away from it 
and then come back because teams are so, especially at the beginning of games, aren't they? They're so dialed in to cover a certain way that if you go away from it and come back, they won't be as dialed in potentially. Oh, I, I agree a hundred percent. And then they're trying to adjust to whatever you change to. Uh, and then while they're trying to make those adjustments, now you come back to maybe your original game plan uh, and some of those things have opened up for you. So uh, just trying to really evaluate what the other coach is trying to do from a defensive coverage standpoint uh, and put your best players in positions to make plays. And that's the ultimate goal for us on the offensive end of the floor. Man, this is why coaching so fun. I know those type of things. Uh, coach, is anyone watching the opponent's bench for substitutions or play calls? We do. We have uh, one of our support staff. He sits in that seat closest to the opponent's bench, uh, is always watching that. Uh, we, we don't do the big, huge whiteboard with your matchups, but you know the coach who's in charge of the scout is making sure the matchups are set. Uh, and, th- and that's his, his key coming out of every timeout, every substitution that's made on a dead ball or free throw. That's the scouting coach's responsibility to make sure we're matched up and dialed in there. And then with that, is someone watching the clock? And then what type of things are they communicating based on watching the clock? Well, I always want to know uh, in the college game, we have the, the use it or lose it timeout in the first half. Uh, so I always want to be aware of that. Uh, any two for one situations that that present themselves at the end of a first half, always want to be aware of that. And then we have some guys on our team that uh, I'm just a big believer. I want my best players on the floor as much as possible. And so watching, uh, hey, we're on defense, 1208 left in the half, uh, media timeout coming. That's a great opportunity to sub him. And, and get him a longer break. Uh, so those would be some of the things we were we would be watching for the clock. And then I think like most teams, uh, we have a call for when the shot on our offensive end, when the shot clock's under 10, uh, to make sure there's a high alert there. Uh, we don't want to be in that position often. We like to play pretty fast. Uh, but when we are there, want to make sure everyone's on the, using the same terminology uh, to alert the players on the floor that we're under 10. Uh, great stuff. And uh, is someone watching your bench? The camera. Yeah. I uh, always like, I think it's important. Uh, you know, when you're trying to build a program and you want your culture to be right and you want everyone to be about the team and everyone to be about winning, I think everything matters. And so I want to, I want to know what our timeout huddles look like. I don't have time to deal with that in game. But if, if a guy's not paying attention or he's not focused in uh, or a guy's doing good things, communicating the right way to a teammate, encouraging teammates, uh, you know, I, I want us aware of that. I, th- I think the bench energy is really important in game, uh, especially the first half when we're on our defensive end. Our guys, we all speak the same language. We all have, use the same terminology here. They need to be communicating those things from the bench on the defensive end of the floor. And I, and I think that's important. I, w- I want us to celebrate the good plays. Nothing will drive me crazy. We'll make a guy dive on a floor, get a get a loose ball, hit a teammate on the run, and we get a breakaway layup. And I turn around, and one guy's sitting on the bench, you know, like he's being held at gunpoint to be there. That drive me crazy. 
So I want guys who are engaged and invested in the team and what we're trying to get accomplished out there. Unfortunately, we've all been there as coaches and that feeling as well. But I love the point that you just made, because I think as a young coach, this was a mistake I made too often. And it completely changed and altered the emotion of the game when I dealt with those things in game. And they just simply take you away from your focus as a coach and they don't help your bottom line, which is winning. And is that something that you've learned through your years as well? Oh, Chris, yes, <laughs> you're so right. I uh, went from doing a very, very poor job of that to uh, right now, I'd probably say very average. Uh, still a lot of room for growth there for me. I'm, I have a hard time letting little things go uh, that to, to me are not little things, uh, but really just trying to stay focused on the game. And luckily I got a couple guys on our coaching staff who, who know me well, and they try to handle those type of things before it gets to me and then try and keep me on task. Uh, I have a hard time letting those things go, but it is so important uh, to stay focused on what impacts winning. Uh, during the course of the game. Every coach in the world is nodding their head that's listening to this coach. They're, <laughs> we're, <laughs> we're all the same. Because, I mean, you said it, everything matters. So I know you're conscientious about everything that you do. So I'm curious, do you have a plan for where you stand or where you're most often communicating as a coach during a game? I don't. I just, I like to stand. I like to move around. I, I can't sit there and watch the game. Uh, so I enjoy just moving as the game. I don't have any plan or theory to it. Uh, but uh, I, I like to watch the game. And, you know, I think early in my career and, you know, just over coaching, trying to coach every pass, every possession, uh, even at times trying to officiate every, every, every play. And just, I, I enjoy being able to just watch the game and try to process what's going on. Uh, make some adjustments as necessary. Uh, I, I want to really challenge our players and practice and push them uh, in the game. I want them to go play. I, I don't want them looking over to me after mistakes or missed shots. I just want them to go play with great confidence and, and know that they have my full belief and trust on the floor. Well, and that's great because that's going to be a segue into what we talk about next, which is your communication plan in game to your players. But let's just circle back a little bit to effort first, because you've talked about the little things and all these things that matter. When you do have a challenge with one of your players with effort, how are you dealing with that in game? Is it a question of the substitution, a communication? What's happening for you? Well, if we feel the effort's lacking, you have to sit down. I just I don't I don't know any other way uh, besides kicking a guy off the team. You know, but that's certainly not the goal. So we've been fortunate that, that really uh, the majority of my time here, uh, the, the culture and accountability that, that the players have for each other, uh, that they would never take the floor and not give maximum effort. Uh, but if for some reason we see that, I think you have to come sit down and we have to have a, a brief discussion with the, that's one thing we do when you sub out of the game, you're going to, you can go, tag your teammates and, and get something to drink, but then you come and sit down next to a coach and you don't, you're not going to the end of the bench and pulling your shirt out and complaining and all that. You come sit down next to a coach to get your encouragement or to get any corrections that need to be made. I, I think that's really important. It's great stuff. And uh, then getting back to this in-game communication to your players specifically, 
Um, I imagine the keywords that you use from practice transfer to the game. So you're using certain keywords to be to be able to communicate quicker to your players. Can you give us maybe an example and uh, just some insights in terms of how you do communicate directly to your players in game? I, I think in the flow of the game, you know, there, there's not much uh, from a communication standpoint. I, I think there'll be some things that I might see and I will turn to the assistant coach in charge of that area to make sure the guards understand what's happening on this ball screen coverage. And I want them to communicate that with the guys who are going to be going into the game from the bench. Um, and then obviously your timeouts, we're big on dead balls and timeout, all right, dead balls and free throws, get to your huddle quickly. I want my five players on the floor to uh, huddle quickly so we can give them the call or any brief, quick instruction uh, that they might need. Uh, and then I think, you know, then it's timeouts. You know, how do you best take advantage of that? If I go into a timeout huddle and go over eight things, uh, it's I just wasted my time. Uh, I, I want to come into the timeout huddle, uh, trying to hit them with something positive first, something we're doing very well, and then cover one, maybe two things that have to be corrected. And I think you start giving more information than that. No one's going to hear it. No one's going to process it and certainly won't carry it over to the game floor. So. Try and be short and sweet and very direct to the point. I think overall, Chris, just as a program, and I've talked to our staff about this, there are three things I, I have to do. Number one, I, I have to provide simplicity. I, I want to simplify everything we do, terminology, systems, uh, practices, so on and so forth. Then number two, I have to provide clarity. Uh, this is how it needs to be done, uh, very specific and to the point. And then the third thing is intentionality. Got to be intentional on how we try to build these players and build our program. And so always try and come back to those three things, simplicity, clarity, intentionality. Love that. Love that. Very specific plan for you uh, to adhere to. And uh, another challenge that goes with that is deciding whether it's a group communication or an individual player communication. Like, is this something that's happening to just one player? Is it happening to the group? And then if it is happening to one player, is it important for everyone to know, or is it just important for that one player to know? And I think as coaches are listening to this, they know the complexity of what we're talking about. <laughs> uh, I, it's a great question. You know, you know, we're dealing with different personalities, different upbringings, uh, different ways of being motivated uh, amongst players. So I, I think it's very important that's why we always come back to the relationship piece. How do I communicate best with this player? Uh, you know, some guys you can go after and challenge more so than others. Some, if you challenge them in front of the group, their their night is over. You, you'll never get them back. Uh, so that it has to be a one-on-one -on -one conversation. Uh, and I think just knowing your personnel uh, the the best way. But I, ultimately, if it's something that impacts the team then that, that point has got to be discussed in the timeout uh, right away uh, to me. And so uh, you, we, it, the tone, uh, the messaging, very important, uh, and, and how you deliver uh, to keep your guys with you and aligned. Another thing I struggled with and got better at balancing was this, as a coach, we're really good at being able to recognize what's wrong or what can be better. And not as good sometimes at telling players what they're doing well and we want repeated. 
And I'm wondering if that's something that you've focused on or something that you've kind of have some insights into helping us understand how to do a better job at helping players understand what we want repeated. I think it's an area I've gotten better. I think early in my career, did a really poor job of that. I just focused on the mistakes and what had to be corrected. Uh, you know, want to want to really reward the guys who are doing what you need done. Uh, reward the guys who are giving maximum effort on the floor. Uh, reward the guys who are unselfish and all about the team. Whenever I get a chance to reward the guys who come to practice every day, and you know exactly what you're going to get, even if they're not in your top eight, top eight or nine rotation. I, I think you want to emphasize the behaviors you want repeated. And so we always talk about it as a staff. When there's a guy giving unbelievable effort to the to the offensive glass, that needs, you know, just like you would blow the whistle because you're upset, someone didn't get over there to take the charge. You need to blow the whistle and celebrate this guy who just got seven offensive rebounds in the first half of a game or whatever it might be. And so, you know, still an area I have to keep growing and keep improving. Um, but I think you always want to reward and celebrate the behaviors you want repeated on a consistent basis. I wanted to take a brief pause from the podcast today to tell you about the pick and roll offense course on basketballimmersion.com. An NCAA Division I coach texted me last week telling me that he joined basketballimmersion.com and took his first course. He told me, and I quote, the pick and roll offense course was tremendous. So many creative ways to categorize pick and roll concepts and make the teachings better. I cannot wait to watch more videos and complete more courses. Your learning will never stop as a member of basketballimmersion.com as there are 25 courses with more coming each week, over 600 videos, and now over 70 master classes on special topics and so much more. Get one-stop shopping to stimulate your coaching. Get access at basketballimmersion.com and support not only your coaching, but this podcast as well. Thank you for being part of this community. Yes, absolutely. Love that. Uh, players on the bench, Coach, uh, what are your expectations for your players on the bench? And the, the main reason I ask this is, you know, I know we want 100% focus, but the reality is players cannot be 100% focused all the time. So, and this is one of those little things that kind of annoys us as coaches, but probably shouldn't when players aren't 100% focused on the bench. But I know probably you've outlined the expectations for them. So what are the expectations? I, I think invested and engaged in the game uh, would be where we start. Uh, we use the word, like I'm sure most programs, energy. I mean, we've all been around a guy who brings energy to the team. Uh, it's contagious. Unfortunately, we've also been around a guy who's just an energy drain, sucks the life out of the building every day. So I, that's where we start on the bench. I agree with you on the focus part, but before you can be focused, you got to be invested and you got to be engaged in the game. Uh, I don't mind getting a bench warning from the officials because our players were too loud or too active or celebrating. Uh, great plays too much. Uh, I, I encourage that. Uh, and then I think the next piece then becomes sure focused and watching the game and seeing where you can make an impact when you get into the game. And, you know, because that's, that's one challenge I think for bench players, you maybe it's, it's part of the hypocrisy of coaching probably, but you're held to a, a different standard. You don't get to go into the game at the 14 minute mark and take three warm-up shots and trot up and down the floor a couple times to get into the flow of the game. I hate when people say that. 
you know, you, you, you go to that scorer's table, you better be ready to go into the game and make an impact right away and be dialed in. And, and that's just the reality of, of coming off the bench and how it has to be done. Absolutely. And, you know, the bench warning is actually a win, isn't it, for you? And, you know, we want that bench warning at some point in a game. Well, the, the fifth core value of our program is joy. And, and I think, you know, these players work, majority of them work almost every day, 330, 335 days a year to get to, to game night. 30 times. I mean, that, you think about that. You, you spend out of a 365 day year, you get to play 30 nights. If you don't enjoy that, if that's not fun for you, if you don't celebrate that, then you really need to look to do something else. Uh, you need to do something else with your life. So uh, I, I think that's so important uh, that, that there's fun and excitement and energy on your bench. Well, not to mention that you create a permission for them to have fun and excitement. And I think too many coaches take that permission away from players. So I love that joy is part of your values. Do you, do you want to give us the other four, Coach? Sure. Starts with hard work. Uh, the way we define it, and again, I think I got to provide clarity. Uh, elite performance requires elite preparation. Uh, the number two is unselfishness. Do you make the people around you better? Uh, number three, toughness, uh, ability to move on and focus on the next most important thing. And then four, accountability. Do your words and your actions match? And, you know, so many times they don't. And that's our job is to create that kind of culture where if you say you want to be a pro, then your actions better back that up by how much time you invest in the gym, film study, the weight room, uh, nutrition, rest, sleep, whatever it might be. Uh, for example, and then the fifth being joy. Uh, when I first started, when I was blessed enough to get this opportunity, joy was not one of them. Uh, it was those first four I mentioned. Uh, and then the first one was character. Um, but after the second year here, I was miserable. I'd worked my whole life to get this unbelievable opportunity of a lifetime. And it was miserable coaching our team. And so character became just the price of admission. If you don't have that, you're not a part of our program anyway. So we removed character from our five core values and added joy. And it's been a game changer for our, our players and our program. Oh, tremendous introspection there, coach. Thanks for sharing that. Back to the players on the bench. I'm wondering, are there ways that you're keeping them engaged as well? Or is someone responsible for asking them questions? Because we know one of the mistakes that we all make as coaches is sometimes we yell at our bench. <laughs> no reason. They're not playing. <laughs> well, we, we align our bench a little bit differently. Our seats closest to half court are six, seven, and eight on the depth chart, uh, our first three subs into the game. And then we have our assistant coaching staff in the middle, and then our other players uh, going down from there. And it's done intentionally. Uh, there's communication. It allows our coaches uh, to communicate with players on each side of the bench uh, versus being just five coaches up toward half court and then all the bench at the end are the players at the end of the bench. Uh, I want there to be constant communication there. I talked about when a player immediately comes out of the game, he goes in and hits up all his teammates, gets his water, whatever. He comes and sits down next to his coach and gets the information that he needs. Uh, and then I always want the offensive coordinator, defensive coordinator, special teams coordinator 
communicating to the players on the bench during live action, making sure we saw uh, this thing that's being done well or this mistake that needs to be corrected. Cool insights there about uh, actual plan. And uh, you talked about coaching during live play, which you don't do as much as obviously during stoppages in play. But I'm wondering then, is there a mechanism for you or someone to be able to help players refocus on the court, either through some psychology strategies that you've worked with or some other things? A good point. And uh, I think it starts with our culture of we talked about toughness. And the way we define it, the ability to move on and focus on the next most important thing, whether that's you made a good play or you made a bad play, we got to move on and focus on the next most important thing. And hopefully we've instilled that enough because we're simple. I mean, I'll I'll see great quotes, great YouTube videos. Uh, If it doesn't focus on those five core values, uh, we're not sharing it with our players even though it might be something I believe in and I, it makes sense, we're, we try to be very simple. And so we drive home those five core values on a daily basis. And I hope we have our players trained to where we're in the heat of battle in a game and things aren't going well. Instead of imploding uh, or falling apart, we come together as a team and find solutions we were down 14 at halftime at Memphis a couple of weeks ago. And, and I thought it really spoke to the maturity of our team. Uh, we went in at halftime. Uh, I challenged them a little bit. I thought we maybe gave a little too much respect and passed up some scoring opportunities that led to turnovers. Uh, so we made a couple adjustments. But the guys came out and we just started chipping away to start the second half. And, and we end up going 10 of 15 from three in the second half. and and get a great win on the road uh, at Memphis for our program. And, you know, I, th- I think that game wasn't won at halftime. <laughs> that game was won with the work these guys have put in over the summer, the fall, uh, the preseason, uh, the understanding of how we define toughness and how we need to move forward. Uh, we've already had three games this year where we've come back from double-digit leads to win. Uh, I, d- I don't want to keep getting in that position. Uh, but I commend our players for having the toughness and the ability uh, to come together in those adverse situations and find ways to win. Uh, and so I, I hope that's something as a staff we're instilling on a daily basis, because ultimately that'll carry over to life. <laughs> I think we all know that. Well, it, Coach, we can tell so much of your program success and your success is just it keeps connecting back to simple. And uh, that's awesome to hear throughout this podcast and obviously the communication that you have as well. I'm wondering then in game, have you spent time with your players on teaching them what to say in game to be able to help each other or cue each other, you know, whether it's about opponent scout or specific things for your team and what you guys are communicating? Chris, I think you have to be intentional there. We're in an era and it's not a complaint. Uh, It's just an era where people communicate via text, uh, via social media, Uh, face-to-face conversation does not happen as often, especially in adverse situations. And so if you don't help prepare your players on how to handle that, uh, I, I think it can implode on you in game. Uh, Because no one wants to be criticized and you have to be able to handle uh, that type of communication uh, to have success at this level. 
And so we try and put them in adverse situations and practice. I know everyone says it, but I, I want our practices to be a lot more challenging than the games. If you're going to quit on us or if you're going to fall apart when things get tough, I, I'd rather find out on the practice floor when no one's watching, you know, than on the game floor in front of 9,000 people out here. So uh, I think that's all in how you build the program. But I, I do, there have been times where I'll, I'll have to stop practice and say, hey, that's not how we communicate with each other. You have to be able to talk to each other like men, like grown men. And, and, and we all got to understand how we need to communicate, uh, especially in the heat of the moment, uh, because, you know, we only have so much time out there on the floor to convey our message, whether it's player to player, player to coach, coach to coach. Uh, that's where we always come back to the simplicity and the clarity and the intentionality. Well, and as you already referenced, you know, you're going to deal with adversity and your players have done a great job this year. And uh, clearly they're applying that strategy in some way uh, as a cliche or a general rule. You know, as a coach, you generally coach opposite your player's emotional state. I'm wondering, is that something you adhere to? Is that something you believe in? Or is there another way that you approach in game coaching? I, I have to watch myself because I, I'm just uh, a passionate, emotional on the court. I mean, I, I love what I get to do. Uh, I, I still can't believe I get to wear shorts and T-shirts to work every day <laughs> and coach college basketball for a living. I, it's still amazing to me uh, after all these years. And so, uh, like like most coaches, you're a competitor and you want to win. Uh, but I think. The, the tone of the messaging, uh, when you can really challenge a player and get in their face, when you need to pat them on the back, uh, are all things as coaches we're always trying to work on and improve uh, because ultimately the goal is to get the maximum amount out of our players and help them max out on the floor. And if they're in a bad emotional state uh, because you ripped them because they turned the ball over three times, that's not going to be good for the player or the team. And so just trying to be very conscious of how we communicate and knowing your players. I have certain guys right now where it doesn't matter. You can say whatever you want to them. They're going to hear the message and move on. Got other ones. If you don't use the right terminology or the, the right tone of voice, you might lose them for two days. And so I think just being very uh, intentional there on knowing your personnel and how to best communicate with them. And then all this in-game coaching comes back to a little bit of this and not talking about TV timeouts, just timeouts that you trigger. What are some triggers or some cues that would cause you to trigger calling a timeout? A oh, lack of effort, uh, giving up a layup in transition because we're trotting down the floor. Uh just think of the ones we've used this year, um, missed box outs, leading to offensive rebound, putbacks multiple times, and then uh, consecutive turnovers, uh, just where we're not getting a high quality shot. Uh, you know, I, momentum, I guess, uh, you know, if the other teams on a run, but I, I really tried not to use our timeouts. I, I want to have those timeouts for the last two minutes of the game, if we can at all possible. Uh, but unfortunately, there are times where you have to burn them. You see it more in the college game than at other levels. It's the coaches call, and I'm not sure if you do specifically, but coaches call timeout to set their defense after a made basket. 
And I've always been somewhat confused by that, having coached the FIBA game where you can't do that. I'm just curious your philosophy on that. Not, not a fan at all. Okay. Uh, not a fan at all. The only time I would do that is if we scored was say 40 seconds left in the half clock keeps running and in college and and we could call a timeout to get it, make sure we get a two for one. Mm, Okay. Good example. That would be the only way I, I see that a lot watching games on TV and and that's the one neat thing of coaching. There are a million ways to do it, but I'll see a team on a run and they hit a big three and call a timeout. And I, I don't ever understand why you would do that. Me neither, coach. That's why I'm asking. So good to hear. <laughs> good to hear. Um, obviously, you have to let players play through bad stretches sometimes and all those different things that go with it. Um, when you do call a timeout, how are you organizing the timeout? What type of organization do you want for your players? The, the five players who are in the game are seated in a little semicircle on the, the stools that so many people use. Uh, the other players or locked arms behind them. Uh, so I can see the eyes of every player in the program. Uh, I spend the first 20 seconds or what have you with the staff. And then we go into the huddle and I want to be very organized and what we're going to use that time for. So it, like I say, it's usually hammer something home. That's very positive. And then if there's an X's and O's correction that needs to be made or adjustment or simply what we want to run coming out of the timeout, we might review that there. Um, But uh, every once in a while, you know, you got to go in there yelling and screaming, but that's, that's certainly not the goal. You don't want to do that often or, or they're just going to tune you out. Coach with all your experience as an assistant head coach, I'm wondering if there's certain things within timeouts that you find you can make an intervention and it could lead to an outcome better than other things? Oh, for sure. I I think on the defensive end of the floor, if if there's a player that's really hurting you and and you can adjust how you're guarding that specific player, whether that's doubling the post, doubling a ball screen, uh, face guarding and denying a really good wing player uh, to make the other coach have to adjust how he wants to get that player uh, or keep that player involved in the game. Uh, I think on the offensive end, uh, our whole offensive philosophy will always come back to how do I get, uh, regardless of what you do defensively, how do I get our best players the ball in positions where they can make plays to impact winning? And so I think you can always be aware of how they might be guarding your best players and make some adjustments in that timeout that might be simple, but might free up that great shooter for a wide open three, or might get that really good post player an easier touch in the middle of the lane where they can't trap them, uh, whatever that might be. We know this is the analytics age, and we know there's tons of information that can potentially be used. So during games, what are you charting and more importantly, what are you using specifically in game to help you make decisions? Uh, for us on, on the offensive end of the floor, uh, just what's, what's being effective and efficient for our team from our offensive plan. Uh, what's getting us the highest quality shots. What is our offensive rebounding coverage look like? On the defensive end of the floor, we like a lot of people, we chart deflections just because I think it uh, you know, shows the energy and the effort your team's playing with. 
but the missed box outs uh, for sure. Our defensive floor balance uh, is being charted. And then we, uh, like a lot of programs, we call it a kill, three stops in a row. Um, I think over the last five years, when we've had six or more, our record is 60 and two. Um, and we just took our third loss to Auburn. We had six at Auburn. Uh, this is the third time we've lost in five years when we have six or more kills. Uh, so that's something really important to us. We have our game goals, and we chart when we get that game goal, what, what's our record? Uh, we want to be able to give that type of data and feedback to our players. So when we get six kills or more, you know, we've won 95% of our games. Uh, so our players need to understand the value in, in reaching that goal. Uh, same thing with getting to the free throw line, our, our turnover rate goal, our defensive rebounding percentage goal, and so forth. So uh, we focus in on those game goals and then really try to give our players feedback on what our record is uh, when we meet those goals or vice versa if, if we don't meet those goals. Well, I think what you just said was so important for everyone to understand is that connect the stat to success, connect the stat that, to something that actually helps players understand that it helps them individually get better and helps the team win. And, and I love that you just connected that. Do those game goals, do they change from game to game or are they pretty consistent? Ours do not change. Uh, we're always going to be the same. Uh, we, we've been lucky. We've had really good players on offense. Uh, so really our only offensive goal is to be below 17% turnover rate. Uh, and so the rest of it focuses on the defensive end of the floor. I think if we play the right way on offense and execute, we'll get high quality shots and have good enough players to, to score enough points to win. So the majority of our goals focus on the defensive end of the floor. Good stuff. In terms of substitutions, do you, do you like having a set rotation with a set time? Or is it more based on field, time, score, matchups? Combination of the two. I, I do like, though, on, on game day, I'm going to meet with the staff. Uh, and we're going to go through. I want to have a good idea of who's playing, what the rotation looks like, uh, when we want to try to make those subs, who's earned the time and practice that week, uh, and so forth. So I go into, into the game with a pretty good idea of what we want to do. And then that's always going to fluctuate based on the flow of the game, foul trouble, someone playing well, not playing well, what have you. Uh, but I think it's important. I don't, I don't want to go into the game blind and it be a free for all. I, I'm not one of those. I don't believe in playing 11, 12 guys. Uh, I'm just not any good at it. They're coaches who are really good at it, but I, I prefer to, to know who my eight, maybe nine guys are. Uh, I want our players who have earned the time. Uh, to know they're going to get their time. And, and I want our best players on the floor uh, as much as possible. I'm wondering if you could expand on the one point you just made, which I think is so important. And that's a concept that a player can actually earn playing time because it's kind of like a cliche we all say to players, but the reality is it doesn't always happen. So saying that, what you just said about a player can earn playing time from practice, how do you, how do you make sure that the team knows that and notices that? Well, I think it's important. If not, you know, eventually you're going to lose 10 to 13. If they just see that there, there's no hope of them earning their way onto the floor. Uh, you know, you have to be, you know, spend as much time with those guys. Understand, hey, here's what you need to do to change your role. 
And then also keeping some of the younger guys focused on the process of you got to understand this practice today on January 15th of your freshman year, it might not earn you 20 minutes of playing time on Saturday, but it will help you continue to get better so that when these three guys graduate next year, you're in position to step into that type of role. And I think that's hard for players to see. And so I want to be very intentional on how we communicate that with our players so they understand the value. Uh, but I, just going back, our, our team, we had uh, the 2019 won a game in the NCAA tournament with John Morant. Our two starting post players in November and December ended up being fifth and sixth in our front court rotation by January and February. And our sixth post player on opening night ended up being a starter uh, for us. And it, as a freshman, he's still he's still with us. He's a a four-year starter, a two-time all-league player. Uh, and so that we have examples from our past where guys have climbed the ladder and taken over roles on good teams. And so I think it's important that they see that and know those opportunities exist. Well, thanks for sharing that. Because as we know, is often the case, saying it is one thing, but action speaks louder than words. So actually playing them is what players want to see and notice. And uh, that's that's huge part of it. Uh, in game, when you're coaching, uh, what triggers you to call a or to focus on a specific concept or action or a specific play call uh, within the game? What are some of the things that trigger you to call a certain thing? Well, I think just going into the game with the general plan of attack, where we think we can be successful, and most importantly, who we can be successful through, uh, our, our personnel, uh, making sure we're getting them the ball where they need the ball to make plays for our team. And I think so much, you know, it's great when you run one of these corner rip plays and you hit the corner and you cross screen and the other team falls asleep and you catch it and lay it in and you feel like this great coach, you know, that those are great. But when you go back at the end of the year and you track what percentage of your points came off of your neat play call, it's lower percentage than we as coaches think. So I think just making sure you have a good plan of attack, getting the ball to the people who need it, where they need it, so they can make those plays for you. And, you know, there's certainly there'll be times you hadn't scored two or three trips. Hey, this ball has got to go inside. Or your, your best shooter hadn't gotten a look in, in four minutes. Hey, we, we got to run him off some screens. We got to free him up. Let's go to one of our money plays. I think there are those triggers uh, that you have. Uh, you always want to know in tight games, you know, those last eight minutes, I, I don't want to be making it up on the fly. I, I want to go with what our players know the best, uh, with what's been most effective for us, and not be wor so worried about, well, that uh, they, they know it's coming. But uh, just do your job, do what we're supposed to do. Uh, all of our offensive systems should have multiple scoring options out of everything we do make the reads and go make the plays. And so that's how we try to do it. Yeah. Those unstructured moments are really what defines winning and losing. Aren't they so much uh, saying that though, do you script any plays at the beginning of the game? No, the first possession, first usually the first possession, yeah, the first possession and, and have a good idea. Hey, these, these first three trips, these are what we want to look to do. Um, but one thing we try to do, and it's the fun thing about, you know, getting to be a head coach 
And you can run whatever you want. You can do whatever you want on offense. And so we try to have a very, uh, a variety of different actions. And you just never know what might be good on that particular night. We were in a championship game uh, five years or four years ago. And we went to a simple, we went one, four flat. It was a tie game, about 12 minutes to go and sprinted up uh, an excellent pick and pop four man and set a flat ball screen at the top of the key and picked and pop. And we ran it the last 12 minutes of the game. It won us a championship. Um, nothing special to it, um, but we had a variety of ways we were able to score out of it. And it was very effective for us. Uh, other games, it might be you know multiple stagger screens that end up being good for you. Another game, it might be pounding the ball into the post. So just trying to have a variety of ways that you can win games, I think is important. Coach, I mean, the success there has been tremendous and a great history in that basketball program. Uh, for you specifically, in the last five years, you just won your 100th game and your 135. Just tremendous success. Wondering again, if you can give us some insights into what's led to that consistency of success within your program. Uh, thanks a lot, Chris. I, I would point out right away, we, we've had great players. And I, I think that's an answer you hear commonly from coaches, but I, I would add to it great players who have bought in to what our program's about uh, on and off the court, offensively, defensively. Uh, they've bought into the core values, uh, to the culture that we, that's been built here and have a great, great, great coaching staff. I, mean, I can't believe some of these guys are still here with me. You know, they should be on to the, the highest level, uh, power five type type jobs. They're, they're, they're really good in building the relationships with our players and really investing, and their families included, uh, investing in our players to make sure they have a great experience while they're here. And so that, that's the rewarding part for me. You know, we had Shaq Buchanan here. He made his NBA debut last night for the Memphis Grizzlies. He, for the last three years, he's just been working in the G League, working and working. And, and you hope some of those values that were instilled in his time here have carried him through that toughness to just keep focused on the next most important thing while you're chasing your dreams. And now to see him in here in the office last night, make his NBA debut, you know, you just cry tears of joy because you know how much that means to him and his family. And so, you know, at the end of the day, it comes back to people, Chris. You know, we've, we've been blessed with great players, uh, players with great families. You know, always the families of players never get enough credit at the college level. It, it blows my mind how much they travel. Uh, the financial and time sacrifices they make to come watch their sons play. Uh, it's, it's really inspiring to me. And I like it at Memphis, we went at Memphis and, and we've got our players in the, you know, some of them had 40, 50 people there at the game and they're in the crowd celebrating with them. I mean, it's just, oh, those are the memories. Those are the things you take away and, and carry with you the rest of your life. Awesome stuff. And I can't let you go, Coach, because I know people will be asking me, what are some of your favorite books behind you that you've read? 
Oh man, there are a bunch of good ones. Uh, you have a whole stack. I don't know if those are Christmas books or they're new ones you've read already. Is, some <laughs> of them are giveaways to the players. <laughs> uh, I, I tell you one is, is, as we, as I tried to prepare myself to be a head coach that I read that really made a big impact on me was Bill Walsh, the legendary coach of the 40, San Francisco 49ers. Uh, and it's right. The, the score takes care of itself. And it was just about how he built that organization, the standard of performance, uh, the culture, uh, how every person in the organization matters and impacts winning. Uh, that, that one was terrific. Uh, Nick Saban's book uh, that he wrote when he was at LSU, it's now out with the Alabama cover. Uh, it, yeah, that was an awesome book. And then, you know, I love all the John Gordon short, quick hitting books. I think those are good to study with your players. Uh, the energy bus, uh, the the uh, training camp. Training camp's great. Yeah. One on one studies with our players on that uh, because they all want to be pros one day. It's about an NFL player, his journey to become a pro, what the best of the best, and what they do to separate themselves from everyone else. Uh, but we could talk books all day, but th those, <laughs> those are some of my favorites. Awesome. Just curious as they're behind you and uh, it's great. Coach, I can't thank you enough. Just tremendous stuff, tremendous insights into you and your program. Thanks for sharing the game with us. Uh, thanks so much, Chris. Thanks for all you do for the game and, and to sell it, uh, to promote it. And, and I enjoy it. I, I steal your stuff all the time. We, we install it into our offense. So. Awesome. Thank you for listening to the Basketball Podcast. Learn more from some of the best coaches in the world at immersionvideos.com. At immersionvideos.com, our unwavering commitment to you is to offer the tools necessary for you to be an outstanding coach who values learning and seeks to evolve. If you're a better coach now than you were yesterday, we've done our job, and so have you. The goal is to focus on authentic sharing of resources you can use to help your players and teams improve. Drills, tactics, techniques, philosophies, practice design, and so much more will be shared from numerous coaches, including Nate Oates, Doug Novak, Aaron Fern, Dave Smart, and so many more to come. Go to immersionvideos.com now to check out all the products and follow at Immersion Videos on Twitter to keep up to date. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and to give the Basketball Podcast and this week's guest a shout out on social media to show your support for us sharing the game. And to stay up to date on all things Basketball Immersion, subscribe to our newsletter at basketballimmersion.com newsletter.